In the records of the Federal Convention of 1787, Dr. James McHenry noted a conversation between a woman and Benjamin Franklin. The woman asked Franklin, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Dr. Benjamin Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I'm welcoming you back for another episode of Restoration History. Okay, I want you to picture this. The Revolutionary War is over. Great Britain has formally decided to recognize American sovereignty after seven long, bloody years. The Treaty of Paris was signed September 3rd, 1783, and now we're in the summer of 1787, where 13 colonies have sent delegates to the first Constitutional Convention in order to, as Alexander Hamilton puts it, decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Now, we got to remember something. This type of government, a constitutional republic, has never been successful in the history of the world. They've made tries at it, obviously. We have the Republic of Rome, but it's always failed and fallen in the end because it's devolved into chaos. And the establishment of a government from the ideologies of failed experiments in other nations is probably a pretty terrifying thing for this fledgling nation who's just came out of a long and bloody war. So they're meeting in this constitutional convention in the Philadelphia State House, and they've already been at this for four to five weeks. Interestingly enough, in several of the journals and records of the Constitutional Convention itself, a lot of the delegates have made note that this is an unseasonably warm summer. And if you can picture it a little bit more closely, these men are gentlemen of their time. So they are dressed to the nines and they will refuse to remove their jackets even for a closed door, closed window session that lasted for about 80 days, give or take, 80 to 100 days. So they're all meeting and trying to decide how this government is going to go down. The Articles of Confederation that they had in the past were insufficient for forming a more perfect union, and they had realized that there were too many flaws in it. They had to scrap it and start over. So they're meeting in order to figure out how to build a constitution based on a Republican form of government that, again, has never been done before successfully. After a whole lot of arguments and a lot of heated debate, no pun intended, they realize they're not getting anywhere. They started the meetings May 25th, and it's already June 28th. 
in James Madison's notes, he took copious notes and very, very clearly written. He notes that there was frustration. In fact, several of the delegates had already threatened to leave. They weren't getting anywhere, and the excitement of this convention had pretty much dissolved at that point into arguments and chaos, which was exactly what they were hoping not to have happen. In the middle of all of this chaos, we have Dr. Benjamin Franklin stand up and address the convention. And I find it fascinating because so many people in modern day have labeled Dr. Franklin as one of the least religious of the entire body of founding fathers. And interestingly enough, he's the one to stand up and acknowledge what everyone else had failed to recognize. I'm going to read what he says in a minute, but I want you to notice this. Now, Dr. Franklin had some pretty interesting ideas, and he may not have always followed the faith of his forefathers as closely or as purely as we might imagine. I'm still delving into his history, so there's a lot of stuff I don't know about him. But one thing I do realize is that in his later years, he starts recognizing his need for a savior. And at the convention, the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Dr. Franklin is 81 years old. His mind is young. Uh, Several people remark that he has the mind of a 25-year-old. He's sharp, he's brilliant, he's educated, self-educated, and he is not ready to retire, even though his health is not at its best and he's had a lot of years where he has served his country. The average age of a male for mortality rates is about 35, 36. So he's 81 years old and he stands to address the, the convention because he, he is recognizing the chaos. He's recognizing that this is not going anywhere and he realizes one important reason why. Listen to this. Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as eyes, is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In the situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, How has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence... We owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice— Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? 
We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future age. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing government by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. That doesn't say to me a man without faith. Dr. Benjamin Franklin was again, 81 years old, and he was the one who stood up to recognize that they had not once in their entire discussion since the Constitutional Convention had begun, they had not once acknowledged the Creator God who had not only delivered them from a war, but had brought them to that land to give them freedom to worship Him as free men, as human beings in worship of a Creator God. So it's just interesting to me that we have tended to ignore that part of our history. But his speech was actually very, very effective because after that, they started every morning with prayer. They started every morning with a devotional. And I have more notes and and things I will be talking about the delegates who came to the Constitutional Convention because their individual take on Dr. Franklin's imploring them to pray had far-reaching consequences um, and, and good ones in things that they took home, the faith that they took home, not only to their constituents, but also to their own families. So I will definitely delve into that a little bit more. But it's interesting to me because the delegates managed to get through that constitutional convention after that, um, acknowledging the creator of the universe as their ultimate authority. And by doing so, they were able to take their human misunderstandings, their human failings, and put aside their differences in order to create the more perfect union that they wanted to create that they had declared from Great Britain in the beginning of the war. I'm recording this at the end of the Constitution Week, and it amazes me that in spite of the fact that we have a an official Constitution Week, not many people will come away from this week understanding the depths of faith that these men had that allowed them to put aside their differences in order to come together and create a new nation that had never been done before, that had never succeeded before. So the Constitutional Convention raged on, or rather it settled down and they got down to business. And they created, by God's grace, one of the most perfect documents in the history of the world. Not perfect, don't get me wrong, but exactly stating the necessity of a government to protect not create, but to protect the rights and freedoms of men and women made in God's image. 
a lot of people like to complain that the Constitution has no mention of God in it, no actual religious overtones at all, and so it must be a secular document. I want to state very emphatically that this is patently false. If you remember in the book of Esther, there's not one mention of God in the entire book, and yet the entire book is a record of God's hand in the nation of Israel, and you can't get around that just because there's no actual mention of his name. God's presence was in the Constitutional Convention. He was present there, and it was through his grace alone that they were able to create the Constitution of the United States of America, and then later on down the road also create the Bill of Rights. Interestingly enough, at this convention, they argued for writing in the Bill of Rights or the the amendments that would further clarify the rights that were protected under the Constitution. But I'm going to speculate that due to the heat and the exhaustion that they had faced, the reason why the Bill of Rights didn't come in until a few years later was because they needed to open those doors and spread the word forth that they had a constitution waiting to be ratified by the state. A year later, the constitution was ratified, June 21st, 1788, and it was ratified by nine of the 13 states. This is an important moment in history, and we can't deny that. By rewriting history to fit a far-left agenda, we are relegating God to non-existence and the whole reason for the Constitution being written basically becoming meaningless. All right, now I'm going to get down to the meat of the Constitutional Convention. And I have to start it with some facts that you might not know about it. Did you know how much the Bible shapes not only our nation, but our language as well? We have 257 idioms that come from the Bible in the English language. Don't believe me? Here's one. Have you ever heard the idiom fly in the ointment? Ecclesiastes 10.1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Or this one. A leopard can't change his spots. Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Or maybe this one. By the skin of your teeth. Ever heard that one? Job 19.20, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Interesting. These are actually phrases that are used in our English language, and they come from the scriptures, and there's 257 of them. Shakespeare, a man of theater and art, his dialogue contains 2,000, at least 2,000 Bible verses just within his dialogue. In Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, The last few paragraphs 
there were 14 sentences, and in those 14 sentences, he quoted 11 Bible verses. In Benjamin Franklin's, the speech that I just read to you about his call for prayer and worship in the Constitutional Convention, the last 14 sentences, there were 13 Bible verses that he used in order to give that speech. This was the way they spoke. He didn't stand up and have this pre-written script. He stood up and he reported this straight from his own mind where these words rested. He created this speech right there on the floor of the Constitutional Convention. And in just 14 sentences, he had the words from 13 Bible verses. This was the way our founding fathers thought. This was the way that every one of them were taught from the scriptures. Many of them were people who had gone to seminary, where ministers were created, were, were, were trained up to give the gospel to the world. And so they had the Bible ingrained in their minds from very early ages. George Washington wrote a letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. And this was after, I believe it was after the Constitutional Convention. He wrote in just the two opening sentences, there were 10 verses that he quoted. And there's a list of them. It, it came from Second Corinthians, Acts, Isaiah, Proverbs, First Kings, Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, Psalm, Deuteronomy, Micah. These were men who memorized large swaths of not just the Bible, but other great works. Many of them had actually translated the Bible from Greek into English. I mean, this was part of their, their educational upbringing. So to say that America started out as a purely secular nation is so patently false. And I have so many more examples to give of how the scriptures was used in everyday conversation, in everyday thought, and in the laws that the nation were made. It's not just our idioms and our language and the people uh, who created the Constitution. Did you know that the three branches of government came straight out of Isaiah 33, 22. The separation of powers that are mentioned, Jeremiah 17, 9. Tax exemption for churches and religious organizations, Ezra 7, 24. When we say that the founders did not use the Bible or did not use Judeo-Christian principles to write their constitution, we do them a grave disservice. That might be another another episode altogether. But um, Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, stated that the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. And that is so true, at least for past generations. Unfortunately, we've seen a insidious falling away from the, the word of God and we've become more and more secularized because we've taken God out of our public spheres, out of our government, out of every one of the, the foundational units of society, including our families. And we are seeing, because of this removal of God, we are seeing this destruction and devastation taking place in every single level of our nation. It is a fact that if you remove God from your everyday life, from your public spheres, 
that you will see the destruction of a nation. This was proven the readings of the founding fathers who, when creating a constitutional republic, looked at the failures of past governments, past attempts at a constitutional republic or something like it, looked at those failures and noted that the absence of God was one of the biggest reasons that they failed. There's no doubt about it that this government, this nation, began on Judeo-Christian principles. And no modern historian who claims otherwise is telling you the truth, whether through ignorance or through pushing their own political agenda, their own ideological agenda. This nation began on Christian principles and on the virtues and values of our Creator God. When the Declaration of Independence states that our rights and liberties are granted to us by nature and nature's God, the Founding Fathers meant it. And they knew that without His divine providence, without His divine hand in every aspect of their new nation, they would fall. And so every generation that came after them were encouraged and exhorted to preserve and protect their liberties by pursuing the word of God and by pursuing worship and acknowledgement of our creator God's existence. I could get into more. (laughs) There is so much more information that I have. I want to close with a remark made by Reverend Matthias Burnett in 1803. This was part of a larger communication, but one thing really stuck out to me when I was reading through his, I believe it was a letter or an article that he'd written. What he says, and what should still hold dear for us, he states very clearly that to God and posterity, you are accountable for your rights and your rulers. He was, oh, I'm sorry. I remember where this came from. I've got so many notes right now. He was addressing not the Congress, but he was addressing the public who watched the congressional proceedings. And he said, because he was talking to them about these newly elected representatives, he said, to God and posterity, you are accountable for your rights and your rulers. So what he was saying was, is it's not on the representatives of this government to maintain a virtuous and morally upright nation, although they they should, if there is a lack of virtue and moral standard in the nation, the fault lies with the people who refuse to hold their rulers accountable to God. And that's what we're seeing. We, again, are the posterity of these founding fathers, and we have slowly and surely given up rights and liberties that were given to us by God, we have handed them over to the government and said, you get to take care of it. You get to take care of our health care. You get to take care of who gets to define marriage. You get to take care of who defines family. You get to take care of where God is spoken of and where he's not. And we're seeing the consequences of that. If we continue down this road, we will destroy this nation. We are already seeing the consequences of the choices that we've made so far uh, in this modern culture. The only way that we can turn it back is if we are on our knees in repentance to God and allowing him to once again take the handle on this nation and on its people 
and taking on those principles and values that the founding fathers held so dear and acknowledged that they came from and do come from our God. Thank you for joining me today. I have enjoyed expounding a little bit more on some great events in our history, and I would love to hear your feedback and your insight into these little snippets. I wish I had more time to go into more depth and more detail, but there's just so much information. You have no idea how crazy it has been for me to figure out what information I should put in my podcast and what information I've got to leave out. And so I'm really looking forward to exploring these concepts and these people in greater depth as we go along. But I'm signing off for the evening and I wish you well and God bless you. <laughs>